As far as the curse, Christmas carols, joy to the world. And in there it says that Jesus has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That Jesus came to bring joy to the world so that we would experience his blessings wherever we experience the curse. Everywhere that life is broken, Jesus wants to pour his blessings and let his blessings flow like a river of love into every aspect of our broken lives. And, uh, and the Bethlehem candle on the Advent wreath is really about community. It's about growing in community. That's one of our values. And community is part of the message in Romans 5, the passage we're going to be looking at today. Um, last week, in verse 12, we saw broken leaders, um, starting with Adam, uh, and we talked about how it applies to all of the broken leaders that we have today were negatively affected by the broken leaders that are over us. And the brokenness of our leaders has radically vandalized the world that we live in and the people that we are. And so just to remember this, let's look at verse 12 and read this together. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. When I see this verse, you might be tempted like I am to think, wait, hold on, this feels like it's not fair. You know, through one man, sin and death came to all people. I mean, it seems like it's not fair that we'd be affected by a situation that we had no hand in. Um, you might feel this way too. How can we be responsible for the broken leaders that affect us today? Political leaders, cultural leaders, they do things that cause the world to be broken, that, that break down society, that break down um, and bring things in that influence us, that tempt us. Um, but not just out there, even closer to home, even our parents, our bosses, our friends, our spouses sometimes do things that negatively influence us. And, and how can we be responsible for the things that they do? Now, in Paul's day, when he wrote this letter, the, there were two kinds of people in the church. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. Uh, and the Gentiles were all of the non-Jewish people in the church. Um, and the Gentiles especially would have had this objection. They would have said, hey, Paul, you're telling this story about Adam through Jewish history. Um, we don't know this history. We didn't have God's law given to us through Moses. And so you say that we all sinned, but we're not really sure about this. <laughs> like, we didn't know. We didn't know about this stuff. There's a hyphen at the end of verse 12. Do you see that? It's in the bulletin, it's up on the screen. There's this hyphen there um, because Paul actually cuts himself off here. Paul is starting a thought. There's, an, there's a just as at the beginning of verse 12, but there's no end to this thought. Paul says just as sin entered the world through one man, there's no finish to his thought here because this hyphen means that Paul's interrupting himself. He's gonna make a point. He actually pauses here he deals with an objection in verses 13 and 14, and then he deals with another qualification he has to make in 15, 16, and 17, and he comes back to his original thought in verse 18. And you'll see that verse 18, if you have a longer 
if you have your Bible or on your phone, you can see that verse 18 starts in the same way that verse 12 starts. So Paul sort of says, all right, now back to my point. The point I was really trying to make before I interrupted myself was this. And so we're going to see that in the coming weeks. But the point is that verses 13 and 14, Paul is responding to an objection that he knows he's going to receive, specifically from the Gentiles, saying, it's not fair. Like, Paul, wait, hold on, this isn't fair. And so Paul is going to respond in verses 13 and 14 to the objection that he anticipates about saying that everybody sinned, all sinned, at the end of verse 12. And Paul says, wait, hold on. When he says, okay, you think it might not be fair, well, if you have that objection, you have some truth, but you have the wrong conclusions. And so let's look. Verse 13 makes two statements. And so the first statement, let's look at it, says this. It says, to be sure... Sin was in the world before the law was given. So the law was given through Moses in about 1300 BC before Israel's exodus, or I'm sorry, after Israel's exodus from Egypt. So Israel was enslaved in Egypt. They come out uh, of Egypt and they go to Mount Sinai with Moses and the law was given um, around 1300 BC after Israel's exodus from Egypt. And the point that Paul is making here is he's saying... Before Moses, during the thousands of years of human history prior to Moses, sin was in fact in the world. Sin came through Adam, and people have been sinning ever since Adam sinned um, before God's law came. So that's the first thing. So Paul says first um, that sin, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. The second thing Paul says in verse 13 is, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. What is he saying here? Well, he's saying, among other things, God is fair. Okay, God is not unjust. God doesn't hold people responsible for sins when they don't know any better. Okay, it's important to remember God's character. Who God is impacts and affects and dictates in some ways what he does. Um, And so when God acts, especially when God judges or when God punishes, he always does what is right and good. And what this verse is saying is if there's no law, if people don't know, then their sins aren't charged to their account. That's what the verse says, right? See that? Okay, well then next is verse 14. Paul says, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, or as did Adam. So you have this period of time between Adam and Moses. And during that period of time, death reigned. What does that mean? What does it mean that death reigned? It means everybody died. Means death entered in through the sin of Adam, and death was in charge. Death had power over the entire human race, and even beyond that, the curse of death affected animals, plants, the whole world. I mean, it affects everything, and we'll we'll see more of that in Romans chapter eight. But here, what we see here is just that everybody died, and so everyone, including people who didn't sin against an explicit command like Adam did. So some people during the time between Adam and Moses had explicit commands from God, but many people didn't. However, everyone died, not just the people who had explicit commands from God. So what are these verses saying? 
What are these verses saying? Well, against the objection, right? The objection is, we didn't know, it's not fair. These verses are saying, they're, they're building a logical argument. They're saying, number one, if everyone died, and two, God doesn't judge people who don't know, then three, then people did know. Okay? If everyone died, but God doesn't hold, he doesn't judge people who didn't know, then they must have known. Otherwise, they wouldn't have died. So the Gentiles then, that are listening to Paul, that may be objecting, they are without excuse. But if they didn't have the law, then how did they know? How did they know without God's explicit commands that came from the law? Well, before I answer that question, I just want to mention that there are some people who interpret these verses differently. Some people think that these verses mean that actually God is punishing the Gentiles, the people who didn't have the law. They're punishing, God's punishing the Gentiles for Adam's sin. Some people say that the reason why the Gentiles die without the law is because God charges Adam's sin to their account. And so the reason that everyone died between Adam and Moses is because God is holding them guilty for Adam's sin. The problem with that interpretation is that this letter in Romans, we've already seen why the Gentiles die. Romans 1 makes it explicitly clear that the Gentiles are punished by God and they die because they know God and they can see God by looking at the world that God created. Romans 1 says that they can see his eternal power and his divine nature clearly from what has been made. And they have conveniently pushed the truth of God away from their lives. They have suppressed the truth because they wanted to live in sin. And so instead of worshiping God, the point that Romans is making, both in chapter 1 but also here, the point is that instead of worshiping God, everyone has made decisions to not live as God wants us to. And so everyone lives lives that are guilty of selfishness, of envy, of strife and hatred. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody is a terrible, awful, always and only ever evil person. But it does mean that every life is guilty of conscious sin. Romans 1 doesn't say that God punishes people because of Adam's sin. It says that God punishes people because they do things that are worthy of God's punishment. And if that doesn't convince you, I want to also invite you to then go ahead and read the book of Genesis, because the book of Genesis actually spans the period of time between Adam and Moses. And as you read that book, ask yourself, is God punishing people because he's holding them responsible for Adam's sin, the sin in the garden, or is he punishing people because they've done things that deserve punishment? And the answer is God's punishing people for the sins that they have committed. It's really clear. And so the conclusion that Paul is making in Romans 5 is that we do know better. That's the point he's trying to make here. We do know better. We all have sinned, whether we have the Ten Commandments that God gave through Moses or not. No one has an excuse in light of their own sins. To put it in terms of the curse, the curse is ubiquitous. 
It's ubiquitous. It touches all of us. The curse is found in every life. And so, in context, right, if verse 12 is about bad and broken leaders, right, this is something else. We could say it this way. We are all guilty and not just because of our leaders. So, it's true that we have political leaders and cultural leaders who radically vandalize our world. It's true that there are people in our lives who have strong influences over us that push us in bad directions. But all of us bring death into the world. Some are worse than others, but all of us have contributed. So let me dive in a little bit more deeply with a political illustration. Okay, if, that was a big if, okay, it's not a, It's not necessarily a proven if, although some of you are going to think this is already proven, but if President Trump colluded with the Russians and used deceit and manipulation and offered favors to the Russians to get things for himself, to be able to become the President of the United States, if that's true, question, haven't we all lied and manipulated others to get our way. Now, there is a significant quantitative difference between individual people doing the same thing as the President of the United States or someone who hopes to be the President of the United States. So I'm not saying that these are exactly the same things. Quantitatively, there's a significantly worse impact Um, It's significantly more wrong. The more power you have, the worse your evil is because it affects other people. But isn't it the same kind of thing that we ourselves do and are guilty of in our own hearts? If, and this is another big if, if Hillary Clinton colluded with the Russians and paid money to get the steel dossier to lie about President Trump during the campaign. Again, haven't we all been guilty of lying and painting our enemies or even our spouses in the worst possible light to try to win an argument or to try to be right? On staff, we've been talking about this series, you know, for the last six or seven weeks as we prepare um, for these things and as we've talked through the direction that uh, this series is going to go, um, as we've described both leaders and followers, we came to this sort of conclusion on staff that in life, metaphorically, we've all colluded with the Russians. Metaphorically. We've all colluded with the Russians. We've done the same things that both parties have been accused of being guilty of. And it's not just that we sin, but we also create and we gather into communities people who reinforce our sin and the death that we spread. Um, We get people to side with us, we disparage others, we we gossip about them, we rush to judgment, not understanding. Good grief, if you have a platform to speak, it's really challenging when something happens in the news 
and you come out against, or you come out with a position on the facts that are there, or if you like to talk about politics with your friends, your coworkers, or whatever, you have an opinion based on what got released in the news, and then like a week later, or sometimes two days later, you find out, oh wait, hold on, just kidding, because uh, they just came out with more news that says that wasn't actually true in the first place, and you're kind of stuck, right? It's like, well, when should I have an opinion then? How do I know when all the information's coming in? How do I know this isn't, I mean, right, this is the problem that, hopefully Christians will like embrace. There's a lot of people that are like, we don't care. We just, we have an opinion and we're going to take the news that fits our needs and we're going to spout that out and we're going to try to ignore or suppress the rest of it because we want to be right. We do this. We do this. We rush to judgment and not to understanding. And so all of this is to say that the curse is found as far as our lives. Um, We think things that are wrong, that are inaccurate, that are lies. Uh, We feel things that are wrong. Like we sin and then we feel good about it. We get caught, but then we justify ourselves. And we dig our heels in instead of admitting what we've done. We have emotions and desires that are sometimes not appropriate, right? Fits of anger, desperation, revenge, jealousy, arrogance, envy, and some of those emotions and some of those responses aren't always sinful. Sometimes there are righteous ways to respond with those emotions, um, but a lot of times we're just expressing that the curse is found in us. These are part of who we are, and when we express these things, we bring death further into the world, and that death spreads to others. Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously said um, that the line between good and evil doesn't run across party lines. It doesn't run along national boundaries where they're evil and we're good. He says the line between good and evil runs through the human heart. That we are all a mixed bag. We have all colluded with our sin. We've colluded with our sin. And the more I think about this, the more I talk about this, the more this sort of unfolds itself and I can see it everywhere in my own heart and life in the world around us. It just makes me wonder. I don't know if you ever wonder this, like why did God make it this way? Like why does God allow all of this in the world? Um, What's he thinking? And as I've wrestled with this question over the years, as I've studied the Bible from beginning to end, as I've tried to come up with an understanding of how God would answer that question of why did you make life like this? I don't think you, well, some of you may not like his answer. I think God has an answer and I think a lot of us don't like it. Um, The beginning of God's answer to this question of why did you make life this way or why did you make the world this broken, is that God says, this is not my fault. This is not my fault. I didn't make the world like this. I made the world really very differently than what you're experiencing. This is not my design. This was not my plan. This was not my fault. The curse, this curse that plagues the world, that plagues us, that we both receive and then actually give out and share, the curse comes from free will. 
when human beings are left to the freedom of their own will, human beings have chosen to bring sin in. Human beings have chosen to do things that are evil. What we do actually matters. What leaders do matters for good or for evil. No one wants to be a robot. Um, People are champions of free will and free choice. Um, No one wants God to be a puppet master, pulling on the strings of every decision made in human history. Um, That turns reality into something that doesn't feel like reality at all. Um, It feels like God is playing a video game. where he's controlling all the people and controlling all their actions and bringing about this, and it's just a farce, right, without free will. But if we're free, then what we do matters. If we're free, then what we do impacts the people around us. And when people are in leadership, they have a stronger ability to impact more people because they have followers. There's people who are affected by the decisions that they make. And whether the, whether the decision, I mean, if you're not a leader of others, you're a leader of yourself, the decisions affect yourself. If you're a leader of other people, whether it's friends, whether it's children, whether it's employees, whether it's folks that think that you're worth following, your decisions affect them. And so if you're free to choose, then you can choose good or evil. And God says, this is not my fault. What you choose to do is your responsibility. And so then the question comes, why would God then give us the ability to do what's evil? And it's like, well, all right, now you can't have it both ways. God has done this. He's given us the freedom to choose and a free will because he wants us to love him. And love involves choice. And so, today, if you are here and you're a Christian, Jesus says, follow me. And the good news about the principles taught here, that what we do matters, is that there is nothing that's standing in between you and the life God has designed for you but your decisions on what you are going to love most in your life or who you're going to love most in your life. That's the only thing that stands between you and the life that God has designed for you. You have the ability to choose. You have the ability to do what's right or do what's wrong. You have the ability to follow Jesus and to love him more than anything else. Or you have the ability to choose to not love him so much. You have the ability, and we make decisions all day, every day, of what we're going to love and who we're going to love. And we're constantly force-ranking our loves, depending on what's in front of us, depending on what's inside of us. Um, And there's nothing standing between you and the life God's designed for you than your decisions. And for those of you who are here and aren't Christian, Jesus says to you, follow me. And guess what? The only thing that stands between you and a relationship with Jesus is you believing in him. It's you trusting him 
and deciding that you're going to love and follow him. Now, for everyone in this room, myself included, saying that the only thing standing between you and the life God's designed for you is your choices, this doesn't mean that you can do it on your own. It's it's abundantly clear. Sometimes it's like, well, hey, if this is my choice, then I should be able to get myself out of whatever situation I'm in. I should be strong enough to be able to make the right decision. Well, sometimes the decision that you need to make is I have to decide that I can't do this on my own. I have to decide that I need help. I have to decide that if I'm alone with my addiction, it will never, ever go away and it has mastery over me. But if I decide to let someone else into my life, into the darkness part of the darkest part of my heart, if I let someone else in and just am open about who I really am and what's going on inside of me, I'm going to receive strength from that. If I'm willing to open my addiction up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I can't beat this on my own. I've tried. And whether it's drugs or sex, whether it's approval or comparing yourself to others, right? This, these sorts of addictions hit us in every type of uh, form and fashion. But I mean, loving Jesus means saying, it means not standing alone. Loving Jesus means asking for help. It means getting help. It means being open and honest with others. And so typically this means joining a group of people. We have life groups, right, that are small groups that are designed. I mean, it's not like you come in and everybody's doing a confessional session. Like, that's not always what happens, you know, although um, in these life groups, relationships are built so that you can feel comfortable talking to someone about what you're struggling with and having people pray for you. Finding out, guess what, you're not alone. You share something and then half the group that you're with says, yeah, me too. Me too. Let's pray for each other. Let's talk with each other about how to bring the power of the Bible to work in our lives. Like if you don't know how to do that, if you've never heard God speak directly to your life through his word, we want to show you how to do that. Our groups are designed to help each other to learn how to do that. This is what we need. Um, Following Jesus and loving Jesus most doesn't mean that you've got to figure out how to fix yourself so you can present your clean self to Jesus. Okay, following Jesus and loving him most means that you're going to beg Jesus to help you grow. You're going to admit, Jesus, I'm not what I want to be. Will you please, I'm not going to let you go until you change my heart. And then, and, then, and then as you beg God to change you, expecting not that he's going to zap you and you're going to be magically fixed tomorrow, but expecting that God is going to slowly work in your life as you begin to make the right decisions and he's going to steer the direction of your life into something that looks more and more like Jesus. Oftentimes, just so you know, if you don't know this, the process of growing as a Christian um, is not getting zapped and all of a sudden we're fixed. It's usually what one author calls a long obedience in the same direction. Like we set our hearts on something and we aim for something and we, we, we hope, we decide, we work, we strive, we beg God for help, we get help from others, and we hope to see incremental progress over the course of months. Um, 
I'm not the same person that I was four years ago. I'm not the same dad that I was like 15 years ago. Patience and understanding um, have grown in my life. It's like God plants a seed in my heart and it grows over time. There's times when I rip out that, <laughs> that plant that God has planted in my heart and there's other times where I'm actually watering that plant, when I'm cultivating the ground, when I'm ripping out the weeds instead of the plant, right? Um, and this is how spiritual growth works. And so following Jesus, making decisions that show that you love Jesus means, I mean, <laughs> in some ways just means joining the church. It's like welcome. Like we're all in this together. We're all on this road. We're all wanting the, God's design for our lives. We're all failing at it. You know, some... <laughs> Some of us more than others. Um, and I'm laughing at myself here, not you. Um, oh, man. So, so God's response to why the world is so broken isn't just, this isn't my fault. Okay, that's the beginning of his response. Because he wants us to know that we were the ones who did this. Okay, our leaders and then us as followers, we've all contributed, we've all colluded with the Russians, we're all in this, it's our fault, not God's. But God says, look, this isn't my fault, but I'm here to help. Like, this isn't my fault, but I'm here to help. And we get a taste of this at the end of verse 14, right? So reading these verses, we get a reminder that God is here to help. It says there, let's look at it again. It says, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. So Adam is a pattern of the one to come. Who's the one to come? It's Jesus. It's Christmas. Right, Christmas is the fulfillment of, or it's actually the, it's the expression of this last phrase. Christmas is Jesus as the coming one. Christmas proves that Jesus is the one who would come, that God loves the world so much, that God cares so much about how broken the world is and how broken leaders are that he came to lead himself. God cares so much about how broken we are as followers that he came and lived as a follower and succeeded in ways where we have failed. And so Adam is a pattern of Jesus. Now, the word pattern, um, it means a picture, a type. It's like a movie trailer of some of the movie that's coming. Okay? Um, and... So what Paul, the point Paul has been making in these verses is that Adam is a pattern of, the one to, of Jesus, meaning that Adam came and lived and his actions radically impacted the people who follow him. And in that way, he's a pattern of Jesus, okay? Because Adam's sin produced a community of followers who lived the way that he did, broken, sin and death, right? Well, Jesus' righteousness produced a community of followers who live like he does or who live like he did. And so Adam is like Jesus in the sense that both of them are these leaders who have this radical impact on the world and the people who come after them. 
But it's kind of hard to say that Adam is like Jesus, right? Why? Because the impact of, of the actual impact is so different, okay? That difference is what Paul can't not talk about in the next three verses, okay? So that's the point he's going to make next week, and we're going to see how radically different Adam and Jesus are. But here, in this way, in that the impact of their actions affect their followers in the world, Adam is like Jesus. He's, got, he's after the pattern of Jesus. And this is huge because what we're going to see next week, but just to give a, give, give a little taste of it as a pattern of what's to come next week, um, Jesus came to find and seek out every area of brokenness and everywhere the curse is found and plant his blessing. Jesus came so that in every part of our lives, we would experience his blessings. Everywhere the curse is found, in every aspect of our thinking, in every aspect of our feeling, in every aspect of our doing and saying, Jesus came so that we would be renewed. In every relationship that you have, Jesus came so that you would experience his love, his understanding, and his glory so that you would become a person that looks like him and treats other people like him. Right? So he wants to use you to bring his blessings into your relationships. And in some of your relationships, that means that you're going to be the catalyst that joins your relationship to heaven so that God's blessings flow into your relationship and your relationship gets transformed. In other relationships that you have where it takes two to tango and the other one doesn't want to dance, your response, your ability to display Jesus in that relationship is going to look like you loving someone who doesn't love you back. It's going to look like you extending yourself and sacrificing yourself and being possibly taken advantage of, being ridiculed, being made fun of, being disregarded. And you will manifest a different aspect of Jesus and you'll manifest his power to overcome even evil, even the sin and death of unreturned love or unreturned understanding in a relationship. But this is why Jesus came. He came to be so different. He came to reverse. He came to reverse the impact of Adam's action. And so Christmas celebrates this. Like, behold, the newborn king um, but Jesus came not just to save individuals, but he came to save us and make us into a brand new family. And so Christmas means that Jesus saves us for community, for community. He came to make people new and different, especially in how they relate to each other. We've talked about that. Um, but that, I mean, this is what the Bethlehem candle is for, right? The manger is all about this. The world was full of religious, self-righteous Jewish people who completely ignored Jesus, right? Didn't let him in the inn, didn't have anything to do with him, didn't even know or were concerned about anything that was going on there. The world was full of unrighteous Gentiles who didn't even know about Jesus because they were living their own lives of selfish sinfulness. But when Jesus was born, there was a community gathered, Right? And we rehearse this community every Christmas when we build our manger scenes. Right? In manger scenes across our city, across this country, we rehearse the community that Jesus saved. We rehearse the power of Jesus. Right? 
at the manger, you have Jewish people who knew that they needed God, right? Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. You have a community of Gentiles, right? The Magi who came from Gentile lands far away from the true God. You have a community from heaven, right? The angels who appeared and rejoiced at Jesus' birth. And so you have heaven and earth joined at Christmas. You have rich and poor, insiders and outsiders. Everyone is joined together at Christmas and they have one thing in common. It's the same thing that we have in common here as this expression of God's family. And that's that we worship the newborn king. We're not perfect, but we're honest about our failures. We own the darkness. And so Christmas means that we're free to own this. Christmas means that Jesus has come to rescue people like us. And this calls us and it helps us to admit our sin and not excuse it. Right? This helps us um, to not be surprised by our sin to not be surprised that we're part of the problem, that the, the brokenness isn't just out there, but it's, it's in here. That we're part of the problem, but that's not the whole story. That we've been accepted and loved because of Jesus, because of what he's done. So Christmas is, it's the beginning of God's ultimate solution to rescue his people and the world from brokenness. And through him, through Jesus, we are freed from influences and pressures within ourselves that disintegrate community, that disintegrate relationships. We're changed into people who bring his love into our world and into the people that we care about. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Jesus, this is good news for us. It's good news of great joy. And in this way, Jesus, we celebrate and we thank you for describing the brokenness of the world this bleakly. It's true. God, we've all colluded with our sin. We've all contributed. And we need you. We thank you for coming. We thank you for joining us into a group of people where we can be known and loved as we are and find that we're not alone. So help each one of us to realize that the only thing that's standing between us and more of you is our decision to follow you. Move each one of us to turn from our sin, to admit it to you, and to commit to following you again. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to receive our offer.